And welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Trip Mitchell, joined by my co-host and great booker, Randall Carlisle. I'm such a great booker. I've booked the most important person we've ever had on this podcast so far. And frankly, we're here with U.S. Attorney John Huber, but you're also the first guest in a suit. Oh, well, that's right. (laughs) He has to go about his everyday job as well after he does this podcast. I wear this to sleep at night. (laughs) Well, it's important to be in a suit and ready to go. But the show is about addiction here in the state of Utah, but more importantly about meeting people who've done an amazing job of recovering, getting on with their lives, and getting moving forward. And we are so excited. Randall, you were nice enough to bring the numbers in, but we're on a high show. We're averaging 12,000 listeners a week, which is incredible for a podcast. And viewers. And viewers as well. And something you don't know, John, is that we actually have people listening to this in Russia. Really? Yes. Wow. We we have several foreign... Why they're listening in Russia... (laughs) I'll have to find out. I... I offered, I said, if somebody comes from Russia and, and comes to visit, I'll buy them a bottle of vodka and take them to lunch. But, but if they're taking me up on it, yes. So. <laughs> well, there was a guy kind of confused out in the alley behind the studio. He said, I want a bottle of vodka. I said, no, you're not from Russia. So. <laughs> but one of the things that we're excited on, and we're past 40 shows, is this is an opportunity for those of you at home, if you've got some questions, if you have a loved one, if you've got someone you know at work, or yourself who feels like addiction is catching up with you, Both Randall and I are members of the AA community, and getting that chance to have people help us has made an amazing change in my life. And on a personal note, I got a message this morning about a gentleman who took me in my first AA meeting 14 years ago is having his plug pulled today. Went back out, had some alcohol issues, was taken into the hospital, and is going to pass away today. So that is the scary part about this disease, and it happens in both drugs and alcohol. And the good news is there are thousands of people here in the state of Utah who are trying to help. And we're going to give a phone number out for Odyssey House in just a second, and that's a number to call. And Randall has been a longtime newsman in this market, but had an opportunity to go work for Odyssey House and contribute back. And... You're so much happier. You haven't worked a day it's, since. It's, no, I haven't worked a day since, and it's uh, it's so different. And, you know, I've said this before in TV, and John can probably uh, second the emotion, is that we, we don't always do positive things in television, right? Television news, we try sometimes. But but at Odyssey House, I feel like we're making a difference in the world with, with a lot of people. You know, we, we treated over... Uh, seven or eight thousand clients last year, and not all of them succeed. But, but I feel like I'm making a difference more. More importantly than what TV news does. So, not to belittle TV news. Okay. But well, no. you know, my experience, Odyssey House. I've been a prosecutor for 25 years, right. and in my very first years as a prosecutor, it came to my attention the role the Odyssey House plays in our community, and and the great service that they offer, and just the quality program that they have. The judicial and prosecutorial system seems to look upon Odyssey House rather favorably mm-hmm. when it comes to clients who are appearing in court and things Absolutely. like that. How did when you when you were you were a prosecutor in where West Valley? And yeah, well, I started up in Weber County, right, and then quickly moved down to West Valley, and that's that's really where I became aware of Odyssey House because they're so strong here in Salt Lake County. But the judges spoke favorably of them. I wanted to learn more and learn about how demanding the program is. And that, right. like you mentioned, uh, it's it's a difficult program to succeed in. But if you do, you're well on your way to a much better life. 
Absolutely. And now you're in charge of, all, of enforcing federal laws in all of Utah, which is a pretty big job. Describe what, what all your office does. Oh, yeah, that is, uh, that's fun for me to talk about. It's quite an opportunity to be appointed by two presidents now to serve. Democrat, Republican. That's right. right. I'm the only one in the country to have that privilege. Really? Yeah. One of, one of 94 current U.S. attorneys. I'm the only one who was appointed by President Obama and then reappointed by President Trump. So I feel very lucky. But the types of things we do, you know, they run the gambit. Uh, national security is high on our list, and uh, so we're working hard to keep our nation safe from terrorists and spies, espionage. I mean, we had a big case this last year with a, a Utah being paid by Chinese right. to, to give them our military secrets. So that really happens. Uh, you go down the list, violent crime is a big priority for us. And when I talk about violent crime, I'm talking about Gun crime, robberies, drug traffickers, uh, criminal alien uh, offenses. And then, you know, another big priority in Utah are the fraud schemes. So Utah is known for white-collar fraud, and we have an outsized amount of that. So that's another big priority. And also, we protect the taxpayer money. Um, we try to prevent fraud and uh, hold people accountable for defrauding the United States and, and protecting our resources, too. So there's a lot of different projects to work on. And uh, in the middle of all those, though, is our violent crime problem, which the backstory to so much of our violent crime is drug trafficking. And then, of course, we know that uh, those who uh, find themselves on the wrong side of the law, the backstory there, uh, so many times, you know, I've heard 65%, as much as 80% of those stories are, uh, have alcohol and drug abuse in the backstory. Let's take it down to a smaller level. And you do all this. By, by the way, he's a one-man office, and he does all that himself, right? <laughs> right. It's well, amazing. Superman. Uh, we, we, have, we have, you know, 130-some-odd employees, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, uh, close to 60 prosecutors. So it's, it's a big operation. We have a lot of people watching who, are, who have loved ones who are dealing with addiction of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the reasons we wanted to get you on is to talk about the, uh, uh, what I sense is a different kind of approach to low-level drug users who are dealing with addiction as opposed to just say, throw them in jail, throw away the key. You're, mm -hmm. you're taking a rather more humane approach. Can you? Well, yeah, I'm not the only one. I mean, this is a trend in law enforcement that uh, is in our state courts. It's in the federal courts. Uh, yeah, it's a, and it's been around for a while, but I think in the federal court in Utah, it's a newer prospect. It's uh, it's a, yeah, we take a view that, and, and here's the question we ask, but for this addiction, well, who would this person be? And if we can say, if we can take that addiction way, they would be a productive member of a society, then they're probably worth the investment. And that, you know, that you can do that analysis on a lot of people. Sure. But you have to measure that against the offense that they committed that they are in the court for. And uh, there's a certain amount of justice that needs to be meted out but uh, we remember that these are individuals and uh, we're all humans and uh, we want to help each other out. Well, and addiction is, in the state of Utah, we're kind of surprised by the amount of drug addiction there is here. You would perceive Utah as being majority LDS state, so there's not as much drinking as there would be in other places. But people are finding themselves on drugs through no fault of their own. And a lot of this has to do with painkillers and mm -hmm. We've met so many people who have been injured, had their first bout of any drugs, painkillers, and then all of a sudden they get addicted and things go badly. 
Can you address that a little bit and how that's changed here in the state of Utah? Oh, absolutely. That is a common story that uh, someone who didn't decide to be a heroin addict <laughs> one morning, you know, it, it, things to do today. You know, there there are different paths to that end, right? There are people who start with alcohol or marijuana and eventually find themselves involved in the very serious killer drugs. But the the segment of society, and it's a real segment, and there's a quite a number of people in Utah and elsewhere in the country who. Uh, yeah, they uh, slip and fall, they hurt their knee, you know, playing sports or whatever, and go in and because of their physiology or because of the, you know, simply the prescription that the doctor gave them, take two pills a day, you know, for a long time. And before you know it, they find that their body has become addicted to this. And then you see that, um, you know, they'll, they'll go back and, and want more refills. When that doctor says no, they'll go to another doctor and complain of pain. And then it just run that uh, scam for as long as they can to get what they need to feed their addiction. Then, when that shuts down, there's no more doctors who are willing to write a prescription note. Then they will, will resort to the cheaper, dirtier cousin of pain pills, and that's street heroin. And that happens a lot in Utah. And one of the things that your office has taken a big step forward is the fentanyl and how that has become... The drug that takes things to the next level is so powerful and so deadly. Mm. And But you've made a real point of getting after those people. Oh, absolutely. This is such a frightening substance. Because when you think about how, how dangerous uh, it could be to look at someone who's, who's uh, in, injecting heroin into their body, now compound that exponentially, the danger when we inject or, or take in fentanyl. Because, uh, you know, two two grains of salt worth of uh, fentanyl can kill someone by ingesting it. It's pretty amazing. It's being mixed with everything now, including like pot and, and, and meth. And, and, oh, yeah, it's crazy what it's being mixed with. But people are doing it, dealers are doing it because it gives it more of a kick, is that? Oh, yeah, kick. I mean, a kick is going <laughs> to kick you into death. Kick yeah. into the grave. That's quite a kick, uh, and it's so cheap. The profit margin on fentanyl is what drives the drug dealers into the business. So I can spend $3,500 to get uh, a block of fentanyl this big, $3,500. I can cut that literally into a million doses that are then sold. If you put it into a pill form, a fake OxyContin pill, which is $30 per pill, and there's two grains of this block in that, you can see how the profits get huge. Where is fentanyl manufactured? Well, uh, today, China. yeah, China uh, is where most of it has come from. And so the biggest case that we've done in Utah with fentanyl, that came mail order from China through shipping and mail. The scary thing now, and what this is what we predicted a number of years ago, is that when the cartels and their very organized, almost corporate business model in Mexico, when they see the profit margin, on fentanyl, they're going to get in the business. And that's what we're starting to see, is that they're starting to manufacture it in Mexico and ship it into the United States from Mexico. So it's larger scale of what we've seen in Utah on like, you know, two young people in a basement in Conwood Heights and the damage that they did. And that was the that, the pill guy. Yeah, it's the Shamo case, yeah. uh, the, pill, the pill case, the fake pain pill case. And I'd love to spend time talking about that. But now you take that, two young, you know, 20-somethings who dropped out of eBay to get into drug trafficking. Now you say corporate-style cartel is in this business. This is very frightening for the United States. 35, I, I'm terrible at math, but 3500 bucks for a, a million a, a thing of, of, of uh, fentanyl 
and then you modify it so it's tens of millions of dollars for a $3,500 oh, yeah. investment. Yeah, the profits are, are irresistible yeah. for some and, people. And we're seeing OxyContin now, the manufacturers, a number of states, and not on the federal level, but state attorney generals, are reaching a settlement with the family that designed that because it was supposed to not be addictive and it's proved to be very addictive. Oh yeah, and, and I'm, I'm not involved in that lawsuit so I can't really speak to that, but I have studied the issue and if you want to look really deeper, and this is really what interests me, is this addiction crisis in the United States. And so, you know, we've called it the opioid crisis, we've called it methamphetamine, it doesn't really matter the substance. We have an addiction problem in the United States. Uh, what is it? The greatest nation that the world has ever known, probably ever will know, and yet this is an Achilles heel that we have in our society. What drives us to addiction? Why do we, you know, we have, what, less than 5% of the world's population, and yet we consume 98, 99% of the world's hydrocodone? Why is that? That's a very deep, complicated issue um, that we've really got to get our hands around. Right. Those investor. numbers are static. Repeat those numbers one more time. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm going from memory, so, I mean, I'm doing he's, my best He's here. right. I remember reporting. But, you know, you know, we have a lot of people in the United States, big country, lots of people. But if you compare that to the world's population, it's almost a drop in the bucket. You know, we're less than 5% of the world's population or thereabouts. I don't know. You know, I can't nail it down that closely. But we consume... 98, 99% of the world's hydrocodone, which is, you know, a, ma uh, a man-made opioid. So in Europe, my understanding is, is that if you go in for even elective surgery, they won't give you pain pill. They'll give you over-the-counter. In some countries. In some yeah. countries. So have we gotten to the point where we are over-medicating ourselves? Well, I've read that, those observations uh, by critics, and they seem compelling that we've become a pain-intolerant society. You know, we go to the hospital, what's your pain on a scale of, of and you zero, always zero to 10? Exaggerate a little bit. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe you don't. Maybe you minimize <laughs> depending on your personality. But uh, it's all about no pain. We want you to have zero pain. Whereas our parents and grandparents maybe didn't grow up that way where, you know, uh, they weren't looking for a pain pill when they uh, fell off the tractor in the field or whatever. They just grinned and bared it. And... Uh, for some reason, in medicine, we have become pain intolerant. I can't have, I have to be a zero on the pain scale. And so we're going to give you drugs to get you there. And, and one of the aspects of that is because they want good reports when they send, they'll send you a follow-up email and say, how were you taken care of in our emergency room or, or wherever? And they want to have a good report. And the happiest reports come from people who get the zero pain when they walk out of the out of the doctor's office or the hospital. So I had my knee replaced in June and they gave out a very small amount of pain pills and you had to go back and and I thought about it because I've got alcohol and, and stopped sure. early in the cycle because you didn't want to be in that situation. Mm -hmm. But pain is funny. It, it it When I was an athlete, I remember going in to have my ankle done and the gentleman in the next bed over was a Detroit Lions player, and he he told me, complain about pain before it comes. That way they'll keep you medicated. Yeah, right. Yeah. But mm -hmm. what you just said, John, is interesting that we do have a perspective that we never want to feel pain. Mm -hmm. the, uh, I did a, a, a in-depth report when I was working on TV with Brian Besser, uh, the head of the DEA here, and, and, and he gave me the idea for the title, and it was, a pill for every ill, and his claim was the fact that we grow up 
uh, from being a little kids. Oh, oh, you've got a headache or a fever. Let me give you a pill for this, or let me give you some Benadryl so you sleep. Uh, and that we grow up thinking that there's there's a pill for every ill, and then that multiplies itself uh, into what we have today. And that was that was his thinking. I want to get into. Uh, talk about a federal diversion diversion programs because we have so many of them now and at the federal level there hasn't been too much publicity we have and you know uh, it Salt Lake County has drug courts uh, there are drug courts all over America and they seem to be working and the idea I guess is to as opposed to necessarily throwing somebody in jail giving them a chance to seek treatment uh, and avoiding jail, if, if depending on the crime they've committed. Can you talk about, because we had one person on here who uh, got tremendous viewing, and I love her. Uh, uh, she went, she was facing 10 years in federal prison on delivery of meth charges, and she's in one of your diversion programs now and blossoming, just doing, describe mm -hmm. how the programs work. Yeah, well, this one you're talking about, this particular one, because we have a number of different efforts in the federal court. But this one we call the Utah Alternatives to Confinement Track. UACT. UACT. Okay. So the acronym denotes some personal accountability and some power to take control of your life. And that's what we want these people to do. And this is a program that I designed. Really? This is one that I proposed to the federal court. Uh, I had studied a similar program in California and L.A. that had seen you know, some pretty good success with this. And then I... I envisioned how we might be able to apply that here. I asked for the judge's permission to start it, and then we got it going. So we're about uh, you know three plus years into this experience now, and it's very small scale, Randall. So she said she was one of a select yeah, few. Yeah, to we're get into we're this no program. more than a dozen people at a time, and um, for so these are people who do not have extensive criminal histories, and so uh, that that don't have what we view as a high risk of danger to the community. And then go back to that analysis I mentioned earlier. But for this addiction or but for this whatever problem it may be, if we could help them with that, remove that from their lives or get control of it, they're going to be, a, like you said, a blossoming positive individual. Yeah. And, you know, we've had some success. There's a lot of resources that go into this. So it, this is an expensive program. How's it, how's it work? I mean, for the person mm -hmm. watching... Or, or listening to this, it, it, some people would say throw them in jail, and others would say help them. Don't do any jail time. How's how's it work? Well, uh, they have to agree to enter into this program. They have to want it and qualify under those criteria, and then we'll give them a chance. There's actually two tracks depending on the offense or their history. They can actually earn a complete dismissal of the federal prosecution. I mean, how often does that happen? <laughs> Very rarely. <laughs> or they can earn a probation sentence and avoid federal prison but still have a conviction on their record. And it's a rigorous program. It's a weekly program. And then there are there's a field of professionals, treatment providers, problem solvers, life skill people. Uh, district judge meets with them every week. Wow. And, and they uh, do UAs all the time, I'm oh, sure. Oh, yeah. And they do assignments and projects and reporting, and they're congratulated on their successes. And, you know, for some of these individuals, this may be a very rare circumstance that they accomplish something. Right. And Good they get job. And on the Attaboy. back, and they yeah. feel like they're on yeah. their way to, to uh, uh, accomplishing things. Getting a job, finding an apartment, uh, you know, staying off drugs for a time or alcohol for a time. And... We realize that there will be relapse. We realize that there will be trips and stumbles along the way on this path to recovery. 
this group will support them and give them some second and third chances. Eventually, though, I mean, they've really got to turn the corner. And the candidate that you mentioned, uh, we're really proud of her and a few others. My hope is that we can learn from this pilot project, you know, with a dozen people at a time, and apply some of these principles on a, on a larger scale to more people. That will be the challenge because this, like I said, is expensive in the investment of resources for an individual. How do we replicate that without True. overburdening our system? How do you scale it up? Yeah, that's and, and you've got a, boy, a ton of people working on one person. Yeah. I mean, that's... But on the other hand, when you invent a new drug, you have a lot of research that goes into it. And you find out if it works, and then you scale it up. And this is an incredible program because, again, we this was our first guest. And to see someone who facing 11 years in prison, but yet she went out and got sober before she went, mm-hmm. fully thinking that she was going to spend 11 mm-hmm. years. And in the federal system, you don't get parole. There, it's, it's, you, 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 yeah, you get your prison sentence and you serve it. Exactly. And this is an amazing program. We're going to take a short break, but first we're going to give out the number for Odyssey House, which is... 801-322-3222. And if you get a chance and if you have any questions, call that number. There, as I mentioned, thousands of people in the state of Utah out there to help. Odyssey House is a great program, though very strenuous and rigorous. There are programs for everyone out there, but call. They can answer your questions. We'll be back. We're visiting with U.S. Attorney John Huber. We'll be right back. And welcome back to Odyssey House Journals. That's Randall Carlisle. I'm Trip Mitchell, our guest, U.S. Attorney John Huber. And we learned today the only U.S. attorney appointed by President Obama, Obama Eric Holder, and, and reappointed Trump. Trump. Yeah, yeah you, were, you were the guy in the middle. How's that feel? It feels great. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. I mean, with the political happenings of today and, 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 the, and both sides being so diametrically yeah, yeah. opposed for you to make it through, how'd you do that? Luck. <laughs> well, well and, maybe and, you're just uh, good. Well, I, I don't know. I, I will, it, uh, I'll accept that compliment. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, one of the privileges of having served in two administrations and then also be a close advisor to now three attorneys general of different parties uh, I've seen behind the curtain I'll in both administrations, yeah. and you know, people ask me, "Well, what what would you tell people what you learned?" I tell them, "Chill out," because despite despite the div- divisiveness that we see on TV and is is pushed on us by the television, uh, they're good, honorable people serving in both administrations. And I'd say the conversations I had in the Obama administration under uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch conversations I had in the Trump administration with Attorneys General Jeff Sessions and Bill Barr. Let me just pick a number, 87.9% exactly the same. Really? Right, because we agree on so much as Americans. Who likes drug traffickers? Raise your hand. (laughs) Who likes uh, spies and terrorists and violent criminals? Raise your hand. No, none of us like that. We want to solve those problems. And uh, so that's why I say the conversations were... Uh, you know, almost to a T, the very same conversations. A, a gee whiz question here from just some, a person on the street. Do you have a personal relationship? Did you with President Obama or President Trump? I mean, can you call up and say, no. hi, this is John Huber. No, no, no. I, I met both of them uh, multiple times, and it was a great honor to meet each of them and to shake their hand. Uh, but no, uh, the U.S. attorney in Utah doesn't have that type of relationship. My boss is the attorney general and the deputy attorney general okay. of the United States. So when it comes to law enforcement, can you tell our viewers the difference between a state 
prosecution and a federal prosecution. How is that delineated? You know, most of our law enforcement is by design of the Constitution uh, put on the states and their divisions. So the Tenth Amendment that talk the, to the Constitution says the states have responsibility for enforcing laws in their in their areas in their states. Federal law enforcement is very limited. So like 15% of all law enforcement is federal. And so we have limited resources. It's not our primary responsibility to keep the streets safe. What we do is try to pick problems and exercise jurisdiction in areas where the state needs a little bit of help. And uh, Because the resources, my understanding, if, a, if the U.S. Attorney's Office gets involved, you have a lot more resources, be it FBI, DEA, people like that. Well, a lot more of a certain type of resources. So um, let's take drug trafficking, since that's kind of related to what we're talking about today. Uh, our state court prosecutors and the police departments and sheriff's offices are inundated with cases. And they, they'll be interested, very interested, in who that dealer is on the street corner that's, that, that's distributing this poison, this fentanyl, this methamphetamine, this heroin, whatever it may be. And they want to get that person and take them to court and get some justice for that person. What I am more interested in is, how did that guy get those drugs on the corner? Who supplied him? And more importantly, who supplied his supplier? And that's where the federal resources come into play, that we want to track back the fentanyl to China, the, fentanyl, the methamphetamine to Mexico. Find out who those organizations are and try to dismantle organizations rather than the immediate crime that occurs on the streets. Do you think that, and you had mentioned earlier, the fact that we have such demand for drugs, and that's not something that you're going to solve overnight, but <laughs> it, it... I wish he could. <laughs> we found that even in a state like Utah, the demand is equal to any other state. So we're not, we're not unique in that in Utah, there are no problems. We're, we're very similar. Right. We can't have a, a, Pollyannish, a view, yeah, yeah. Pollyannish or that we're in some kind of mountain sanctuary and the mountains protect us. No, <laughs> no. Uh, we are susceptible to these challenges as anywhere else, as West Virginia, Ohio, those kind of places that are devastated by the opioid crisis. We have the same dynamics here in Utah. And we see a lot of, because of our geographic location with freeways going here, there, and everywhere through throughout the country, we see a lot of Major drug busts here. Oh, absolutely. So besides the drugs that, that land here in Utah by design, and there's a there's truckloads of those, <laughs> uh, because of the interstates, I-80, I-70, I-15, we get a lot of courier cases, uh, people who are delivering drugs on behalf of big organizations, and they crisscross our state. Um, you know, met, a lot of our methamphetamine goes up. And to points east, but what's what's troubling uh, uh, recently is with the legalized marijuana states on the west coast, uh, they become havens for organized crime to take advantage of the camouflage of legality, and they're overproducing and black market marijuana that is in high demand in the east, and so we'll see cars and truckloads of marijuana going east through Utah, and then money coming back west to pay for it. Wow. And our highway patrol is put at risk to have to make those stops sure. and intervene in those in those transits. And that's a newer dynamic that has started with the uh, legalization issue on the West Coast. Where do you see legalization going eventually? Now, Canada just legalized yeah. pot for the whole country. Federally. Yeah. Uh, do you see that? I've always maintained that Utah will be the last state to legalize marijuana uh, because of our religious influence. But do you see a point where marijuana is going to be legal nationwide? Well, you know, you get into personal, and I guess it's a DOJ position. The, the 
I don't see much good coming from legalized marijuana. I don't. And uh, I have strong feelings about that here in Utah. I just don't think that is good public policy to somehow give uh, the imprint of this is a good thing or an okay thing to young people uh, to start. And I just think it leads to a lot more trouble in their lives, and it's going to bring down our society. I mean, we, we, want, we, want, we want young people to be focused on job trades, skills, and getting education as opposed to sitting in their basement and smoking marijuana all day. <laughs> I would back him up. Yeah, a ton of people in the Odyssey program – you know, they come in for things like heroin or meth addiction. But when you talk to them, it's, well, I started out when I was a kid smoking a lot of weed and drinking. And then one of my friends had meth or, or, or had an oxy or something, and I tried that, and then it progressed. And I'm not saying it's necessarily 100% a gateway drug, but almost every single person who has a more serious addiction in our program started smoking by smoking pot. Yeah, Randall, I'm glad you said that. And it's interesting how you hesitated and tried to catch yourself and not, and not going all the way, because I think the marijuana lobby is so strong and powerful that they intimidate us away from really speaking the truth. Because almost to every person, a victim of like this a fentanyl uh, case where we had a lot of death and destruction and tragedy in the wake of this fentanyl case, you talk to the parents who lost their children, their young adult children, and they will tell the same story that Randall just told. So you'll have this big fight, political fight, about whether it's a gateway drug or not, but colloquially, talking to people, how did this happen? And they will start with the same story Carl uh, uh, Randall. Randall, sorry. <laughs> Randall said and uh, that marijuana starts this story of tragedy. And what we've found on this show is that it is so easy to get pot at any high school. Yeah. And I'm talking all the way east, west, north, south, Catholic schools, private schools. Drugs are so accessible. They are. And, you know, it. It seems to me it shouldn't be that controversial when the Surgeon General of the United States, that seems like a pretty good source, right? Yeah. When the Surgeon General of the United States says, really bad idea for young adults to start with marijuana because their brains are not up for it and it's going to lead them down a track of addiction that is going to really become a ball and chain for their life. I remember my mother saying, I don't want you to smoke pot. It could lead to something more serious, cigarettes. <laughs> but... Well, it's the it, same with drinking. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I started when I was very young and I became an alcoholic and, and, and it was seeking a euphoric numbing or something. I, I can't even remember why I, why I started it. But the same thing happens with, with pot. I mean, people sit around and get euphorically high and then want to keep pursuing that euphoric high and do it through other means. I mean, and I, I don't think there's empirical proof that it's a gateway drug, but like, as you said, Colloquially, there's there's I, I, almost every single person in Odyssey, uh, and that's like 800 people a day say they smoked pot when they were younger. That didn't did that turn them into a heroin addict? I mean, you can't prove that, but but they did, but they all did. So yeah, that and those numbers are incredible, and this is something that is going to be a huge issue to deal with in this country because every year a couple more states right. do legalize pot. Let me ask you to put a crystal ball on. What do you see in the future in terms of maybe five, ten years from now, what the drug situation is going to be, or what uh, will the laws have changed? Will there be more uh, diversion programs? I mean, it's, it's pretty hard to answer that, but what do you, what do you think that, for the future? Americans are can-do people. 
and we're going to work together to try and solve these problems. We've seen some progress. You know, when I started as U.S. attorney uh, about five years ago, um, I saw this opioid surge coming and the death rates of, of, of overdoses coming. And I held a series of media events to try and call out the community to what we were seeing in law enforcement and these overdose deaths and these tragedies to try and uh, you know, get other parts of the community to step up. Because I, I can't, with my, my police officer friends, arrest our way out of this. No, you can't. I can't. You, there uh, would, we'd have to build millions of jails. Right, you'd have right. To... There's no one answer. It's going to really take a community response, and we've seen that. I mean, you see the billboards. You see television right. stations and public service announcements. You see the medical community. You see the treatment community really focusing on it. And the lieutenant governor announced uh, within the last year or so that we see that overdose death rates with opioids flattening, if not decreasing, just a little bit. Well, that's positive news. Sure. So we've made some ground. We've made some headway on that. And to be more aware, the the, the drug take-back days, you know, these drugs that are sitting in your cupboard because sure, you didn't yeah. have to take them all, right, when you get yeah, your knee right. replacement. But I'll save them just in case save I them. have well, pain. Then, then, yeah. then if you have a susceptible yeah. teen in your family who has you know, had some struggles oh. and they know that that's in there, it's going to really be a problem for them. So let's get – I mean, there's a lot more awareness and effort. And so I am an optimist, Randall. I think five to ten years from now, we can be in a better place. There's not one answer. There's a lot of answers. And a lot of them are Band-Aids and bandages to a deep wound in our society with this addiction crisis. But deep wounds take a long time to heal. But we still have to apply some pressure to it, right? right? We still have to apply pressure while we figure out what's causing that wound. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of work to be done there. I Frankly, I think... Um, and this is where Utah can make a difference with some of our uh, our culture of families and the strength of the family in the home. I really think that's where a lot of this starts. Because a lot of these other stories that we hear are people who um, didn't have strong parents or, uh, you know, uh, good programs after school. Or their parents or, used. Or their parents were users and it's a cycle. Yeah. So if we can, in the long term, so if you're asking a long-term yeah, question, the long-term answer to me is, strengthening the family in the home and giving them more support and resources to avoid this. And you see slivers of that with the, uh, the tobacco and alcohol campaigns. You know, we see right. these uh, ads and campaigns about talking to your children about right. alcohol so that when they make that choice, they're better informed. That's a sliver of what I'm talking about, that I think we can strengthen our home, empower parents and other guardians and adults in people's lives so that that next generation is better equipped to handle this. Well, something to finish on a little optimistic. Well, no, I, I, I totally agree with them because this is a problem that's built up over the years, and, and it was building for so many years before the media or anyone else said, hey, we got a real problem here, and then all of a sudden people start coming together, as he said. I mean, you have Utah naloxone. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're why we don't have as many overdose deaths. And, I, and, and Jennifer Plum, who started that, just came, you know, she came out of nowhere and started that. And, and, that's, and then naloxone kits are in all the first responders' cars now. And I mean, it's just, you're right, it's a, you just, treatment centers. I mean, we've expanded because the need has been so well, great. And, and this diversion court and is diver an Yeah, that's another that. one. So, so there, there are a lot of good things happening. But, and, but, but they don't happen overnight, you know. 
But so I, I agree with it. I agree with it. We appreciate everything that you've done. Thank you so much. We want to give the phone number out one more time because you do it so well. 80. I'm glad you asked me that. I've seen it's like a play an announcer on a game show. I'm glad you asked me that. It's 801-322-3222. And our guest this week, U.S. Attorney John Huber. Thank you so Most much. Most important for guest we've ever had. Thank you very Thanks much for coming by. Is there sure. going to be a dress code in the future? Uh, you know, I dressed up a little bit today, Randall. I, uh, I didn't, so he puts us all to shame, but you look good, John. He does. I want to thank Lee, who's uh, done everything to make this podcast and TV show happen. Bill Francis at Comcast, thank you so much, Bill. We'll see you next time. Thanks for watching. Have a wonderful day.